2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Photographer Herb Snitzer has said, Jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom. And with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and sense of self-worth photos he took of jazz artists during the civil rights movement from 1957 to 1964 will be on view in a new exhibition at the Bremen Museum, as we'll hear later in the program. First... Marietta-based artist Doug Pisick is classified as a master woodworker from the Woodworkers' Guild of Georgia. He has received numerous awards in national juried exhibitions, and his works can be found across the U.S., in European and Israeli collections. He joins us now via Zoom. Doug, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Oh, it's such an honor to be back. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Your latest series is called Art for Our Unusual Times. What was the inspiration?
3: Oh, it's all the unusual things that we're all going through now as we're adapting to the current COVID pandemic. It's obviously been quite a bit of a challenge for literally everybody. And it's one of the rare times as an artist I've actually felt truly inspired to create something based on what was happening around me. And I created a series which is currently three key pieces which tie in on our attack on the virus and also the virus's impact to our body and our impact to our psyche or our mind. It's just something that's been running through my head, and I had to get it out in physical form.
2: How long did it take you to first envision and then create these three pieces?
3: Oh, it's interesting. Several months back, as I was just hearing and thinking about how we were trying to come up with viruses and attack, you know, what what we have going on around us, I came up with an inspiration for my first piece, which is called The Cure. And that's our attack on the virus. And the the inspiration for that was pretty much something I, I almost woke up and just said, I just saw a vision. And the vision was of like a hammer slamming down and destroying the virus, which is a physical representation of what this art is. It's an actual spherical view of a virus with, the little nodules coming out of it. And and I created what looks exactly like a steel hammer, an iron hammer pounding down and cracking it open. And I had the vision of it, but to physically make it was something that was uh, very therapeutic, exciting. and And I felt hopeful and inspirational for others, which is why I put this virtual exhibition together.
2: You mentioned that the piece is created entirely out of wood, including the hammer or is the hammer metal?
3: It's including the hammer. It's actually, I have this large handheld iron, small miniature sledge, and that was my model. But the hammer itself is 100%. The hammer head is made out of maple and is cut to look exactly like a hammerhead, and then it has an oak handle, which looks just like a regular tool handle, and I but I carved all of it myself with all my own tools.
2: So you craft by carving the individual parts. It it's not as a sculptor would mold clay or chisel from marble.
3: It, correct. It's actually very. Uh, it's very very unique with. Um, when you work with materials such as wood and others as well, but with wood in particular, which I work quite a bit with, it's often, often depending on what you're trying to make, it's actually appropriate to make things in sections and pieces. So for this, the hammer head was a single piece, the hammer handle was a single piece, the sphere was a single piece. And there's approximately 20 of these, uh, these, these burl nodules that are wrapped around the piece are all individually done. The trick is to figure out how to design it in advance so that when you put it all together, it looks seamless. And in this case, somewhat realistic with the way it was all pulled together. I know it's difficult over the radio, but I do find that those that have seen it have all felt like it's been visually pops as to exactly what's been represented. And I'm actually very fortunate. The particular piece we're talking about now is actually shown in the current um, the current edition of Fine Art Connoisseur magazine.
2: Mm. Now, you have another piece in this series called "Thoughts in Isolation," and I read that you created a social media campaign asking your followers to share one-word thoughts about their experiences in isolation due to the pandemic what were some of the words you received
3: oh there were so many that had come back to me i'd received over a hundred words of of thoughts people had everything ranging from fear to anger to the word vote you know which means which is so sad that people are are thinking of this from political aspect, as well as the physical aspect and the mental aspect, because this pandemic is hitting everybody from every angle and every direction. What I wanted to do was to narrow it down to just 19 words, COVID-19, you know, obviously the symbolism there. I wanted to put as much symbolism to it as I could, and I picked 19 key words, which kind of symbolized a lot of what everyone had. It was everything from hope, to fear, to solitude, to pensive, and even have baking and booze are words that have shown up as well. There's so much, there's a reason there's no more flour on the shelves. And apparently booze has been a big factor as as well for some individuals for the response. I just thought they were very appropriate, not only because of the thoughts people are having, but also, you know, the humorous aspect as well.
2: Did you receive... A lot of repetitions of words did that help you narrow things down?
3: Yeah, interestingly, there were some, there were a lot of synonyms. Um, you know, the words lonely and loneliness had shown up, you know, often, which which is sad but critically important to be thinking about. And I picked ones that just really stood out that that were very much, um, uh, the basis I think that covered. What happens with everyone. And what's interesting about this piece as well is that although it's talking about isolation, I felt it was important to reach out to the community to get the input. I wanted to get everyone's input. So in a way, this piece called Thoughts in Isolation was created in a non-isolated social media environment. And, and this piece is totally different looking than the, uh, the first piece we talked about, The Cure. And that this one is made with about 50 intersecting, um, shifting wooden rods, and these rods are make a mishmash. So just that looks, for me, it envisions thoughts racing through somebody's mind, and the thoughts themselves make up 19 of the rods, and they pop out. They're made out of a much different colored wood than the rest. So when you look at it, you can see how these thoughts are basically um, randomly and sporadically shooting through someone's mind along all the other thoughts that might be happening with them. It's a very dynamic piece. You can almost feel like you can see the synapses shooting through your head when you look at a piece like this.
2: The third piece is Angel Breath, which has a poetic name. It's also sad
3: to view this yeah I think it's important to have the sadness as well as the hope and the happiness it's a combination piece but it's definitely sadness to it this is our body's response is what this one represents and also very different than the others this one was inspired by an earlier piece I had done which was a heart and lung sculpture which I was commissioned to make for a pulmonologist not surprisingly but this particular one is a bit different. It is, it says, it does look like a pair of lungs, which are encapsulating a heart. The heart though is more like a Valentine heart as opposed to a human heart. But when you look at it, there's a hole in the center of the heart, which as I said, is like, it's having that feeling of a hole in your heart due to the loss of life and the attack and the, that people are having. Obviously the lungs play, are, are critically important in, in what we think of when we think about our what this virus is doing to us. But when people look at it, some see lungs and some see what looks like angel wings. Amazingly, the lungs have that look to them. And I did shape them a little more elongated to have a bit more of that feeling. And I feel that it's very important um, to have a piece that that you look at, it shows love, but also shows the impact that it's having on us as a society and as individuals.
2: Doug, clearly you've been acting on your inspiration having created these complex and thoughtful pieces. How has it been for you as an artist during COVID-19 aside from creating these pieces in response to the disease?
3: I'm glad you asked. You know, a lot of people aren't actually talking, except for you, of course, aren't talking about the art community uh, and what's happening uh, to to them. Uh, One of the galleries that was showing their work has shut the doors. Uh, It's very difficult for all businesses, obviously, with the impacts. And a lot of, a lot of galleries and museums have put together virtual exhibitions. And for example, my exi- what we're talking about now is a virtual exhibition I had put on my website so people can come and visit these three pieces. and actually videos of all three pieces so people can see them in three dimensions and, and try to actually vision them being there in front of them. And it has been difficult though in general because people have a harder time going and seeing the works. I'm currently very fortunate. I have an exhibit at the wonderful Marietta Cobb Museum of Art, located just off the Marietta Square, north of the city. This exhibit is an incredible exhibit. It's their 20th anniversary. I have a joint piece there with the amazing glass artist Robert Birch. He and I have collaborated and created some really fun, exciting pieces, but there was no opening. There were fewer people coming, fewer people allowed in the gallery. And it of course means that less people can come and see. It's not just about the artists, it's about the people that appreciate the art. Both are suffering in a different way. But for those of us that are able to get virtual exhibitions out there and be able to share our works, no matter what they are, um, right now is about all we have going for us and we really appreciate being able to do that in today's times and uh, and it although it's been difficult it's also I've also been very, very grateful that I've had the opportunity to be thinking of new ways of sharing the work that I create, which I had not thought about before
2: indeed, and for what consolation it may be, and I realize it could feel small, visual artists have the advantage of being in galleries or museums where people can social distance and um, there can be timed ticketed admission, whereas symphony orchestras, theaters are facing tremendous challenges with how and when they can return to work.
3: It is very, very true. What, one thing I am grateful for is that the museum that I'm in right now is open and that um, I've actually just entered a new gallery in uh, in Marietta, the Robert Kent Gallery, who is open as well. I'm very careful about how many people can come in for viewing the arts. But I, um, not everyone knows that I'm also affiliated with a wonderful dance company called uh, Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, who I know you're aware of and we had to cancel all of our performances, our live performances, but instead we're currently creating dance movies and films that people will still be able to enjoy and see. It's different, but it's still a way of being able to share. Uh, Symphony orchestras, some of them are showing online as well. However, you're right, there is nothing, nothing that matches being able to see performing arts in person, to experience it, and to experience uh, the visual arts as well. And I'm grateful for the fact that we can do this today, but at the same time, I'm so looking forward to going out and seeing these things in person as well, and being able to experience the joy that you get as uh, as a group, as a society, for these performances.
2: Marietta-based artist and woodworker Doug Pisick, His new series is Art for Our Unusual Times. For more information on how to check out his virtual exhibition, go to our website, WABE.orgslash slash citylights. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. just because summer's winding down doesn't mean you can't still enjoy some good barbecue. Two years ago, the Atlanta History Center presented a wide-ranging museum exhibition on the subject, Barbecue Nation. The award-winning journalist, author, and food writer Jim Ochmody was a guest curator for the exhibition, and that work inspired his book, Smoke Lore. When we spoke last summer, Jim began with the history of barbecue. It's a universal and timeless food. It it appears all around the world.
4: People have been cooking over smoke and flames since prehistoric times, but it took on a particular identity here that uh is is so wrapped up in who we are Barbecue in America goes back to the earliest encounters between Columbus and the and the European explorers, and the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean. It's actually where the word comes from. During Columbus's second voyage in 1493, at what we think was Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, uh, the Spanish sailors observed the Taino Indians cooking fish and iguanas on a little framework of sticks, and their translation, their approximation. Of what the Tainos were calling it was barbacoa, so, which later got anglicized into the word barbecue.
2: Please tell us how this beautifully illustrated book corresponds to the Atlanta History Center's exhibition, Barbecue Nation.
4: Well, uh, 11 years ago, when I was still a reporter at the Journal of Constitution, uh, I was asked by the History Center to come in and serve as an advisor for this exhibition that they had in mind about the history and culture of barbecue. And I, and I had written a lot about barbecue before. In fact, I had uh, co-written a barbecue sauce cookbook back in the 90s with Susan Puckett, the longtime food editor of the AJC, who's one of my best friends. And uh, so I knew a lot about it. and. Uh, And then it just kind of grew from there. I left the paper a year later, uh, took a buyout because I had some books I wanted to do and and, and some other things. And uh, the exhibition got postponed because the recession hit and all of the funding sources that you need to put on a big exhibition like that just kind of dried up. But in the meantime, they asked me to do a companion book to it. And so I agreed to do that and started working on it and then... After the exhibition got put on hold, I went and did this other book, The Class of 65. did a whole other book in between the beginning and the ending of this book.
2: Which is now a classic.
4: Oh, well, thank you very much. It was a real labor of love. And it's very different from this book. It's, oh, a, it, yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's a civil rights story uh, in Georgia. But I'd always done a lot of food writing. So when I finished doing The Class of 65 and finished doing the publicity for that, I came back. The economy was better. The exhibition was resurrected. I came back to doing this book. And then my involvement in the exhibition deepened because the law, Craig Pascoe, a history professor at Georgia State College and University, who had been the longtime curator for the exhibition, he had to back out for personal reasons. And they asked me if I would come in as a guest curator on the show. So in 2017 and 2018, I was working on that in addition to doing the book. So I was just up to my ears in in. Barbecue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are worse things to be surrounded (laughs) by. Jim, where did your research begin?
4: Well, I knew a lot about barbecue already uh, because I had written about it a good deal over the years at the Journal of Constitution. And I'd certainly written about it a lot when Susan and our our, uh, barbecue sauce cookbook came out. But what I didn't know was how national a story it is. I'm a Georgia native, uh, an Atlanta native. And I, I, I certainly had the Southern boys' prejudice that barbecue is, is almost a, exclusively a Southern and Texas thing, that we know it and everybody else is just interloping. <laughs> um, and and that's, that's not true. It's a much more national story. Uh I'll, get, I'll give you an example. I, I didn't know this when I started uh, research on this book, but the whole, you know, when we think of barbecue now, we think about a barbecue restaurant or what you cook in your backyard. You think about that much more than you do like a big event, a political barbecue or a community barbecue, which was the predominant sense of the word in the 1800s. There weren't any barbecue restaurants for most of the 1800s. But the whole backyard cooking thing did not start in the South. And it didn't start in Texas. It started in California.
2: Well, they have, you know, they can be in their yards practically every day of the year.
4: There's a magazine out there, Sunset Magazine, which is kind of like Southern Living. It was started by the Union Pacific in the late 1800s to promote tourism and settlement to the West. And they started promoting this idea of building brick masonry pits in your backyard and cooking on them, more inspired by Mexican rancheros than anything from Texas or the South. And they were actually the pe- people who cu- published the first barbecue cookbook in 1938.
2: I didn't know any of that. Would you talk about the different ways in which Southerners make stew, what many refer to as Brunswick stew, and you even refer to stew masters?
4: Well, there there are several sort of one-pot uh, dishes that are related to barbecue that are associated with the South. Brunswick stew is the one we know in Georgia very well, but it's also in Virginia and North Carolina and parts of Alabama and a little bit of Tennessee. But I think it's probably the most distinctive thing about the barbecue tradition in Georgia is that you always find Brunswick stew, at least in the North, in the, in the Atlanta area, in the Piedmont, Georgia area. Brunswick stew is just an essential part of a barbecue plate here. Um, So Brunswick stew is one thing, and and there's a great deal of variety in how Brunswick stew is made. In Virginia, where it probably originated – sorry, Brunswick, Georgia (laughs) (laughs) – it it, it has chicken in it pretty much exclusively. Down here, it's going to be a lot of pork, and there's usually a lot of chicken in it and maybe some beef. And it's fairly similar to the way they make it in North Carolina. They have a Brunswick stew-like dish in Kentucky that they make called burgoo. B U R G O O. And it is so deeply ingrained in the culture there that back in the 30s, one of the winners of the Kentucky Derby was a horse named Burgoo King. <gasps>
2: Oh, I don't want to think about the implications Bur- for the fast food restaurant that came after that.
4: Burger King, I'm quite certain, was put out to stud and was not, was not <laughs> did not turn up in anybody's pot.
2: I'm uh, glad to hear and that. And then, you, and then in
4: South Carolina, they've got a version of it called barbecued hash, which they usually serve over uh, over rice. It, it's much thicker, and and so there are all these barbecue one pot side dishes, and Brunswick stew is the most famous one, but it's Not the only one.
2: And it's so American to have meat as a side dish for your meat.
4: Well, yeah, I know. It's pathetic. It's like (laughs) like macaroni and cheese being a vegetable.
2: Lots of people don't mind that. Many do not complain that, especially (laughs) in our part of the country, mac and cheese is a vegetable. Your parents were a huge influence on your love for food and the conviviality of dining. And for barbecue in particular, but apparently, the real um, pitmaster was your grandfather, Daddy Bob. Uh, please tell us about Daddy Bob's reputation in Bartow County in Northwest Georgia.
4: Daddy Bob, Bob Achmety, uh was uh, a pit master. He was a farmer uh, in U Harley outside of Cartersville, Bartow County. And he was a pit master like his father before him, James Robert Ockmoody, who I'm named for. And they made Brunswick stew and ran pits at community barbecues around there. And uh he got a, uh, a little bit of fame in 1954 because the Saturday Evening Post, which was like one of the most highly circulated magazines of the time, did a feature of July, on the July the 4th that year about Southern barbecue called Dixie's Most Disputed Dish. And they just happened to set it at the U Harley Farmers Club barbecue in Bartow County where my grandfather ran, ran the pits. And so the first picture you see on that spread is of Daddy Bob. And he, they referred to him as a barbecue chef, which I think his uh, his friends probably laughed at because they, they, I'm sure nobody else called him a barbecue chef.
2: Atlanta author and journalist Jim Aukmuty speaking about his book, Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. Jim will give a live barbecue demonstration on September 13th part of the Decatur Book Festival. More information on that event will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Photographer Herb Snitzer has said jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom, and with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and sense of self worth. We must salute jazz musicians not only as jazz artists, which they were, but as American artists. His work is the subject of a major exhibition at the Bremen Museum, a jazz memoir, photography by Herb Schnitzer. He joins us now, along with curator Tony Casadante. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. Herb, you have photographed icons Louis Armstrong, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, and Count Basie, among others. When did your interest in photographing jazz musicians begin?
0: Oh, a long time ago. 1958 when I was uh, commissioned by Metronome Magazine to do a study, a visual study of Lester Young, the great tenor saxophonist of the Count Basie Orchestra at that time. And I was just so captivated by what I was feeling as much as what I was seeing. It was, it was uh, quite a jolt to my emotional system I never anticipated that I would get so involved with the music, but I have and have still am after all these many years.
2: I'm curious about how you developed relationships with these artists. Would you go to particular clubs, their hangout spots, Uh, introduce yourself? Were, Were you invited to their parties?
0: Well, I did become part of the jazz scene in New York at that time and uh, it, it just uh, was almost accidental. All of those wonderful photographs I made of uh, Louis Armstrong, I made while we were on tour and I was on his bus and we were just hanging out. And, and I really mean hanging out. I mean, jazz musicians are a breed apart. I just love them. <clears throat>
2: Now, your photography career spans more than 50 years. Tony, why does the exhibition focus on the years between 1957 and 1964? During
1: that period, Herb was a young man, grew up in Philadelphia. When he finished art school, he heads to New York to, you know, make his mark on the world. And as he said, the job for Metronome, he had been freelancing for a while, was a year after he was in New York. And then that opened up the world of jazz for him and a permanent position on Metronome magazine, which, again, got him into the community. The focus of the exhibition for that period was it was a very rich time, a great deal of social change, and Herb was kind of right there on the pulse of it. And that is really kind of a core of his work. Herb is still a working photographer. I'm sure it gets a little tougher now with his age and COVID, but he is actively documenting his entire life. But that particular period was a, was a particularly strong period in Herb's career. And it's kind of the focus of the exhibition. And then we deal with a later period when he came back to jazz and reacquainted with a lot of these same artists in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And then we also have other aspects of the exhibition that deal with his social work and uh, social issues that he's documented throughout the arc of his career. The main focus is that early period, but the exhibition is rather expansive, and we have a, a, a lot of different subjects that are covered.
2: It's very much an autobiographical exhibition, Tony. Was that partly your intention?
1: Well, it was, Lois. And some of this, it's interesting also how it's morphed over time. I mean, we're talking now in September, and this was all supposed to be in the can and back to Herb's house by now. And we're just getting it up on the wall due to COVID. We were supposed to open this in April and it was supposed to run alongside the, the Jazz Festival. So when we were laying out the exhibition, it always had that aspect of, I don't wanna say a retrospective because we have a nice big venue there and Herb has wonderful work over the course of his career. So we were able to highlight and focus on areas, but then also add more information and depth of Herb's work and, and the social issue is kind of a, almost a concurrent figure because those social issues go back to the 50s and run up to 2016. So, you know, there, there's an arc to that as well. Um, and it was just nice being able to display both sides.
2: Herb, what were you hoping to reveal about African-American jazz artists that mainstream, predominantly white newspapers and magazines were not showcasing during that era.
0: They couldn't ignore Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, certainly. These were all crossover artists and were accepted by the white world. I mean, that's pretty obvious today in looking back as to how these men and women integrated themselves within the bigger community. One of my favorite is Nina Simone. I mean, I was called by the Colpix Records to do a photo session with Nina uh, in anticipation of their publishing her new... Uh, record. So I got to meet her, and we became fast friends. We were pretty much the same age, uh, had the same political viewpoints about things, and just stayed in touch with each other all those years. I know a lot of people think she was very difficult, but I loved her, and that was important for me.
2: She was an amazing artist.
0: She was a great artist, just wonderful,
2: can you tell us about your parents' refugee story?
0: Well, that, they were yes, they... Uh, immigrants uh, coming to this country uh, when they were very young. My father was six and my mother not much older. And they settled in Philadelphia and created their own groups and uh, protected them themselves in that way.
2: Were they the ones who introduced you to jazz?
0: No they had nothing to do with the jazz world. They they were hard-working first generation or I'm first generation American but my parents uh, they just had to make a living. They had to survive and uh, I was pretty much stifled by that kind of world, and I knew that sooner or later I was going to break out and go to New York, which is where I always wanted to be anyway.
2: What does this exhibition reveal about the connection between Jews, jazz, and the African American community?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question, Uh, the fact that there were many uh, Jewish photographers, which was interesting, photographing jazz. Most of them are gone now. I think I'm one of the very few that has outlived everybody for better or worse. So the connection is an obvious connection. The, the struggle of uh, Jews in America, the struggle of jazz musicians to, to live without the fear of the cops, which I have always felt was a a tragic moment in the history of uh, black relationships and Jewish relationships. Certainly with the civil rights movement, which I was involved with, those two groups came together. They just realized that they were ready to join each other. And uh, they did during that time. number of rabbis the uh, number of influential jewish showbiz people it, it was it was really a natural for them to come together yes i
2: read that you have said injustice for one is injustice for all and i was wondering what advice you might have then for aspiring photojournalists or photographers today who want to document our current socio-political climate, protests, activism, and so on?
0: It's very difficult, Lois. It's that simple. The, The men and women coming up today are having a heck of a time making a living just photographing jazz musicians and jazz artists. It's just, uh, it was a moment in time. It was like when all those guys came together for the Declaration of Independence. I'm not comparing the two, but at a given time, that's what happened in the world of music. I mean, uh, Duke Ellington, by far the, the most wonderful, jazz composer of the 20th century. I mean, you just don't have power people like this anymore. Or maybe maybe they are out there, but I, I don't see them. And uh, that's a tragedy. I, I wish there were a, a new Nina Simone who would get out there and really raise hell. I think she would have had a ball with Donald Trump. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. And that's part, of, that's part of the gift that jazz musicians in those days had. They were part of the civil rights movement. They were er- early supporters of the civil rights movement going back to the late 40s, early 50s. There was a heck of a time. I loved it. And I was all of 24.
2: Wow. I know you revere Duke Ellington and his music. Oh, I do. Can you share some stories of your experiences photographing him? He
0: was just a, a notch above all when it came to doing what he did, which was he and Louis Armstrong just changed the course of the music. I mean, Duke Ellington was a very sophisticated composer, and, and a band leader, he was always traveling with his band. He had to make money to keep his band together. After the Second World War, big band music uh, gave way to uh, almost uh, classical uh, music, of trios and quartets. And, you know, the Miles Davis Quartet, and John Coltrane, it became part and parcel of the American scene. But yet, Blacks had a hard time, a very hard time, especially coming here in the the South. I mean, it it was just really interesting stories galore. The one I loved the most was Dizzy Gillespie for a a short period of time had a a big band and he was touring the South in in a bus and they They found themselves without hotel arrangements. Somehow it it dropped through the cracks. They pulled up next to this hotel and Dizzy said, now hold on people, let me take care of this and and stay in the bus until I think everything's okay. So he goes in and he talks to this young reservation clerk, a young man. And he said, uh, I'd like X number of rooms uh, for uh, my uh, band. And the young man said, well, I can't do that. We can't serve black people. You have to go somewhere else. So in the meantime, he had had Dizzy put on a red fez on his head. And he looked at this young guy and said, black? Who's black? I'm North African, can't you tell by my face? And the young the young kid just didn't know what to do. He said, well, okay, and he let the band stay. I mean, it was just, things like that happened all the time.
2: Talking about some of the photos themselves, the photos are so gorgeous. I'm looking at one, um, two pages, one of Thelonious Monk, At the piano at the Randalls Island Jazz Festival. And then on the opposite page, you captured him playing ping pong. And he has such glee and intensity in his eyes. I'm amazed. The paddle itself looks like you captured the vibration or the action of it. Can you tell us something more about that? Monk
0: was, he he lived on a different level. I mean, he was the strangest, but most loving of all the men and women that I uh, met. He just lived on a plateau like Duke, just his own person. Nobody tried to imitate him, he didn't try to imitate anybody else. musicians. And uh, I was told that he loved ping pong. And I was always a pretty good ping pong player. So I worked it out with the Baroness, the Konenslager. She protected Monk and uh, took care of him financially. She was a Rothschild. So he was playing at the Jazz Gallery on down in the village and at the end of the evening, which was now like three o'clock in the morning, we drove over to her house. She had a Bentley and I had a beat up VW. But anyway, we started playing, just hitting the ball back and forth, back and forth. And I said, you ready to play Monk? And he nodded and we started and we went at it. And uh, I lost all three (laughs) games. (laughs) <laughs> that I played them, but it was such a joy to be able to do that with this great player because Monk was really super. The, the people thought he was a little loony, but he wasn't. He was a great, great pianist. It was just wonderful. I mean, those kinds of stories happened all the time. I can give you one more if you have the time. Yeah. It, it was at Carnegie Hall in 1968. February 23rd, I'll never forget that date. And we're backstage, we, we had come together because of, of the 100th anniversary of the birth of W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual. And so I was backstage because I paid a little extra and you could get backstage in those days. So there we were, I found myself standing next to James Baldwin, Dr. Martin Luther King, Ossie Davis, and me. Oh my. Right? And I didn't have a camera. <laughs> I, I just, you know, and by 1968, I was doing other things and, and I didn't walk around with my camera, which I should have. And there, <laughs> the, the, and what I found out, which was just, Shocking to me, in a way, was that Martin Luther King Jr. was no bigger than me. And I'm a pretty small guy. And James Baldwin was even smaller than me. It it just overpowered me with with, uh, joy and fun to know that, uh, you know, this man who changed the course of history was no
2: bigger than me. Ah, greatness looms large. One of the most famous of your works is a gorgeous photo of Louis Armstrong. He looks very pensive. And he's wearing a Star of David. This was taken at Tanglewood, Massachusetts in 1960. What can you tell us about that photo, Herb?
0: We were on the bus going from New York to Tanglewood. And Lewis was a smoker. And uh, he was just sitting in the seat in the bus, his shirt open, revealing a Star of David, which was given to him by the Karnofsky family. The Karnofsky's took in this little boy named Lewis, and protected him, fed him, clothed him, took care of him as a young man so that he, he never forgot that because as he got old and, and they gave him the Star of David as a birthday present and he wore it his entire life. Just one of those great stories of uh, humankind where uh, this kind of thing could happen. The caveat that I put to the story is that he always had a Jewish bass player in his group. Jack Leshberg, Mort Herbert, these were all white guys, and everybody else was black. And and I am convinced that this was payback on the part of Lewis.
2: You think it was deliberate? Very,
0: Very deliberate, yes. Pops was very deliberately making a statement, a political statement. They all were, by their very presence, by the fact that people were hanging photographs of black artists on their walls in, in middle America. I mean, if that isn't a revolution, then I don't know what is. I can't tell you how much that era influenced me as a person, let alone as a photographer.
2: Well, I think that comes out In your art. Tony, you mentioned the part of the exhibition when Herb's activism is showcased. Can you tell us about that pivot in Herb's career, focusing more on activism and documenting protests?
1: Yeah, I think it was. There, there was both a pivot, but I kind of see them more as, as parallel courses. You know, as a photographer, Herb was doing it for a living. I mean, it's how he made his living. So, you know, he was fortunate that he had what he loved, the jazz photography that was also paying his bills. But just being a photographer and just exploring the world and commenting on the world, whether it's social injustice, however he saw it, And because it was heightened through his professional work, it always went in his private work. The one thing I will say about the exhibition that's a little interesting and kind of brings it to today a little bit more is that when I was down there looking at the work and I kind of saw these two parallel tracks kind of coming up from the prints that Herb had and what we were trying to pull together the exhibition, there were three photographs that he photographed in 2016, after a young black man was um, killed by police in St. Petersburg, Tyron Lewis. And it's interesting, the time, so I'm going to kind of confess to this, is that I was looking at those, and I thought, well, that's an interesting take on it, but I'm going to purposefully not take those three up, because this is about Herb's work, and the jazz story, and I'm doing the civil rights thing, but I don't I don't want to just overly sensationalize, you know, this poor tragic thing. Then the spring unfolds and George Floyd and the awakening that the whole country has. And so I call Herb up and I say, you know what, Herb? You know, you have been documenting these sort of George Floyd events your entire life. I almost feel embarrassed. I didn't include him Will you please send those up? Because I think that's a nice way to end to show that. This is still an ongoing struggle and part of it. And it was the whole awakening that made me change my mind of like, oh, that's just a, you know, I don't want to seem sensational to, oh my gosh, this is really Herb's DNA that I need to put on on display here. Because Herb did cover that. And there probably weren't a lot of photographers there covering those marches.
2: Also, I know the Bremen has reopened and I imagine there are special safety precautions while attending the museum. Will viewers also be able to visit this exhibition virtually?
1: Well, initially, because we are launching this virtually next week on the 14th, and it will be up on the website and will be a virtual exhibition on the Bremen's website. Leslie Gordon And David over at the Bremen are working through the logistics of being able to open it up. So it'll probably be first special groups that come through. And I'm hopeful at some point that over the course of the show, we'll be able to have some hours for general public to be able to sign up. But the Bremen is working through that. But right now, we'll just have to stay on the Bremen website uh, as they work through those issues and precautions to to make sure and and keep everybody safe. But it is up in the museum, and I'm just hopeful that the doors will be able to open up and and let more people in to see it. But we're also very excited about what we're able to offer online. We have a video of Herb. We have a three-dimensional tour so you can move through the exhibition space and look at all the individual images and take your time and explore yourself. And I'm just really hopeful that the building will, will be available as well at some point.
2: Exhibition curator Tony Casadante and photographer Herb Snitzer, A jazz memoir, Photography by Herb Schnitzer, will be on view at the Bremen Museum through December. The virtual exhibition opens on September 14th. More information will be on our website at wabe.org/citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE at Lattice Choice for NPR.